0: following installment of everyone else contains a section towards the end of the podcast that some people might find a little upsetting so be aware So, I was sat in Wales, with no money, no job and in a roundabout way I got in touch with a guy called Nick, who wanted a cameraman. I trained as a journalist in in Falmouth and it was what I wanted to do. At this time the Arab Spring was just starting up, uh, it was in its infancy. So this guy, Nick, emailed me, he said he needed a cameraman in Benghazi, so we exchanged five emails. And uh, he said the interview is, can you get to Benghazi? Nice. Okay. Uh, I sold what stuff I had. I borrowed a camera, I borrowed a laptop. And I managed to get a one-way ticket to Malta Uh, Then arriving in Malta I managed to blag my way onto United Nations flight uh, Going into Benghazi They were the only flights going in at the time Because the fighting was getting quite messy over there Um, So I arrived... Arrived in Benghazi with a loose arrangement to meet Nick. When I landed, I had no sort of contact details from that could be used there. Anyway, um, wasn't a hundred percent sure even of the hotel he was in or anything. I come out of the airport. And it's very all the looks I were getting were very suspicious. People were were very very hyped up. And so I came when I came out of the airport. All you can hear is you can hear the pop, pop, pop of gunfire, just from from everywhere really around the airport. You you, you didn't see anything immediately, and then there'd be like a muffled sort of crump, so there's an explosion, distant smoke rising, and everyone's walking around quite twitchily. But the the airport was. It was a big focus of security at that time, so they were they were very, very worried about it being taken. Um, so I, I was outside waiting, I was quite worried, smoking cigarettes, wondering whether this was in fact a massive mistake. <laughs> uh, but I thought, okay, I need to come up with some type of plan. wasn't that far from Egypt. I thought I could hitchhike to the Egyptian border and I can dump all my kit to travel light and then just try and find some way back to Britain. 24 hours previously had been south-west Wales. Um, so it was a completely different situation. Uh, so I was getting worried because Nick hadn't turned up when he was supposed to have turned up and like i said i was coming up with plans to sort of get myself out of this which was fine you know it, it is a kind of adventure in a way you know and as humans we do kind of look for that kind of adventure see how much how much trouble i can actually get in and what can i do to get myself out of it for me that's quite a theme <laughs> So about two hours after landing and coming out of the airport, I'm sat there, i smoking cigarettes, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'll give it, I'll give it another few hours, and then I'll sort of make my way off. And then a car comes flying round the corner, screeches to a stop, and the guy jumps out of the passenger seat and goes, "All right, chap, Gareth, get in." So I jumped in the back, and then we flew across town, avoiding noises and. Groups of uh, lunatics, armed to the teeth, got to the the main hotel in Benghazi, the Uzu, which was just high activity, heavy security. Booked in, had no money, couldn't pay the bill, so I'm I'm totally winging it at this point. Nick had no money. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know how we were going to pay the hotel bill, but that was. You know, totally secondary at that point because it was surrounded and inhabited by lots of press and lots of soldiers and lots of armed gangsters, really. So then we spent the next nine months following the revolution from Benghazi, staying on the front lines so that we could kind of monitor the way it swept across the country. It was like a tide. That's the best sort of way I can describe it. It It's like a tide that swept across the country. But it had been in the making for a long, long time. So we went across the country. So from Benghazi in the east, we went southwest to the desert, basically the start of the desert and the Nafusa Mountains. Well it was it was kind of Bedouin towns, so it was very nomadic uh very very rough um and it was it was actually quite funny how we got there because we um we ran into this guy we we went across to the border with Tunisia first to kind of get some more money to keep us going from the television company so at the border they handed us over a brown paper bag filled with cash. And then we got talking to this one guy who was a rebel. And he said, I'll always remember this, he said to Nick, he goes, how far are you willing to go? And Nick goes, all the way, chap. <laughs> and then the next thing, we're travelling with him down to the Nafusa Mountains, and within 24 hours, we're in the middle of a huge battle. Tanks firing over our heads, and pick up trucks with anti-aircraft guns just firing left, right and centre. So it was very, very hectic at that time. But then we we got the call that um, they were going to start making a move on Tripoli and this was the major point of the revolution because Tripoli was everything to Gaddafi, it was his power base. Um, So we went in with the rebels and, and... kind of a convoy of several there was several convoys going up from Nafusa and from all over the country and converging on Tripoli so we came in and it was it was an incredible time because it was the the Describing it now, looking back, it, w- it was what I imagine the sort of liberation of France in World War II was, was like. There were flags and there were people waving and, and shouting, and they were just overjoyed to finally have almost. It, it was like breaking the siege of Tripoli because they were they were under siege for uh, almost two months at that point. It was they were running out of food, the water had been cut off he was ruling Tripoli with an iron hand at that time, any disagreement they were just vanishing so we came into Tripoli and we were having trouble getting into the palace, Gaddafi's palace in the centre of Tripoli was the main focus of Tripoli so it was surrounded by rebels and there was continuous continuous fighting going on with every type of weapon you could possibly imagine. We're stopped by the rebels who are surrounding the palace and out the corner of my eye, I saw a guy from Nifusa who we'd thought was a Gaddafi loyalist at one point when we first met him out in the wilds, 500 miles to the south of Tripoli. And he saw us and he came up and he hugged us and he goes, let these guys through, let these guys through. So they just opened up and we we went in. So we were there when it when it actually fell, which was very messy, <laughs> it was very messy. We were very, 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 very lucky to get out of that one intact, um, but we did. So we stayed in Tripoli for a while. Reporting daily on on the events that were happening, the fighting between all the factions who were trying to get control of Tripoli because if you're a militia and you're in control of Tripoli, then you're in a strong position to be in control of the rest of the country because that's where the power sort of emanates from. So you had these, these militia who gradually evolved over the next few months after Gaddafi's death they gradually evolved Into just criminal Gangsters that, that's all they were armed, armed criminal gangsters And they were out to get as much Themselves as they possibly could um, So you had these roving Bands of heavily armed Psychopaths uh, You know taking what they wanted At any time Because there was no There was no law you know, there was no one to answer to. You could pretty much do anything you liked, and so old grudges were coming to the fore, and so, you know, a slight, a perceived slight even would be paid back. Very, very, very messy. Around this this time, I met I met a guy... Called Majid Fattori. He was one of the original revolutionaries. He'd been sort of fighting against Gaddafi in one way, shape, or form for a long, long time. And so, when the revolution actually started, he went into it full pelt, and he he helped organise it. He, he fought in a lot of major major battles, and he was put in charge of defending some of the heaviest battle scarred places you know where the, where the, the major battles are going on he kind of took control and started fighting and protecting people as well he was a, he was a um, he had an amazing heart amazing heart to him that man I met him drunk in he, he was absolutely drunk slumped on the floor in the middle of uh, Tripoli just just <laughs> Um, He was upset because the the gangs had become criminals, and and so the revolution had changed. So we spent a lot of time with him. He became sort of part of the team of me and Nick and and him. And because of all his sort of local knowledge and knowledge about Libya, he was excessively helpful. But then he came across this story, which um, he told us, and it, it was as soon as we heard, you know, the basic version of it, we thought this is something that needs to be addressed immediately. So it, it was quite, it was quite difficult to. To get all the pieces together, the story now it's it's far easier for me because I'm I'm seeing it from this perspective. So it, it, I've put loads of things together that I couldn't at the time. All the main battles for Libya were fought in uh, a place called Misrata, which was to the east of Tripoli. That was the the town that was the worst hit. Uh, lots, lots of uh, stuff happened in this town. It was very, very badly hit, but also they they were legendary as the, the biggest and hardest sort of fighters because they fought tooth and nail and and managed to sort of prevail at the end of it. Now. About 40 miles to the south of Misrata was a town called Tuurga. Now, Tuurga was a town created by Gaddafi to house sub-Saharan Africans to complete his building projects. 30,000 sub-Saharan. He completely, he created this town out of nothing. There was some bad feeling between Misrata and Tawarga before the revolution because just an influx of people. Um, but during the revolution, Gaddafi hired a lot of sub-Saharan mercenaries. Um, and when he attacked Misrata, he used uh, part of Tawarga as an operating base to attack Misrata from so these mercenaries were placed in this town and then they attacked Misrata, they go back to the town, they attacked Misrata, and go back to the town. After that, after Gaddafi had died, the Mizratans, at this point, who were a law unto themselves, essentially, they decided that now this town was going to pay for these things that happened. And, and so stories, rumours and things started flying around. like They were using magic against them and, um, they were doing voodoo and then they were doing all, all sorts of lunacy and rumors flying around and then the misratans decided that they were going to wipe Tuurga off the face of the map we managed to sort of sneak into the town of Tuurga and by this point it was it was pretty much all over in this town. We were the first kind of journalist in the first sort of press who who'd really heard about this story because of magic who who was Mizratten and he knew the things that were going on so we we went in and there was evidence of torture murder and and just destruction and just destruction they'd blown up all the buildings they'd tortured, mutilated and murdered as many of the residents as they could. By our sort of calculations, we'd estimated that out of 25,000, there were 5,000 who'd managed to flee and kind of get away. So you're talking 20,000 people just slaughtered. This is a war crime, I have no, absolutely no doubt about that from the the evidence that we saw. So we went into the town, we collected as much evidence as we could, filmed as much as we could. Uh, We were very much in danger coming into the town because they were still, you know, getting rid of the buildings. They were literally wiping it off the face of the map. So then we'd we'd filmed it and we'd spoken to some of the survivors that were still around. We'd interviewed them, we'd found out what had happened. You know, we got testimony. And your first thought is, okay, now we've got this information, what do we do with it? So we found the UN representative in the country and we handed them the evidence. said, look, this is happening, this is going on, this needs to be addressed right now. Then we also went to Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International again gave them the evidence and said look you need to do this and it needs to be investigated by the International Criminal Court and the UN and people need to be made aware of it, of, of what's happened here because it's, it's huge, it's, it's a, a horrific thing. After arriving at the refugee camp, we were told that we could not film and the army was told not to comment on an incident in which its alleged eight died. Upset by what has been happening, one witness who didn't want to be named explained what took place on the 6th of February. They came in around 25 to 30 cars full of guns. Kalashnikovs, FNs... After we'd informed everyone we could have formed, you know, to be aware of this, then we released it as a news report. Um, And that's where it started to go a bit strange. About two days after the report came out, we got a warning saying that the guys who did this, uh, they're looking for two reporters. We do not accept this because it is against the laws of the Islamic community, Libyan society, and basic human rights. In my opinion, the cause of this is the Mizrahatan rebels. In the general sort of scene of what was going on at the time with us and in Tripoli, you know, you're you're talking, there's huge battles in the street in the middle of the day. You know, so you're you're seeing there's like a huge explosion uh, up the street from you. You know, so you kind of take these warnings, you just go, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. You you kind of, to some extent, you just get, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, I could get shot tomorrow, so just carry on doing what we're doing. About three days after that, we're out filming one night. Uh, We're getting some night shots because we were going to do a a longer kind of format piece, like a feature. So we're we're out with uh, a taxi driver called... Mohammed and uh, a fixer called Assad who was sat in front seat with his machine gun and then there was, we were stopped at a checkpoint, now this was fairly standard because there were checkpoints all around Tripoli at the time Uh, it's fairly standard, we've been through hundreds and hundreds and you know, we had the passes from the sort of fledgling government at the time to say that we were allowed to be filming but then we got stopped and as we got stopped it was unusual because we were sort of pulled out the car. The guy who pulled out the car seemed massively agitated immediately. You know, and it was unlike any any other sort of pickup we'd had, any other stop. So he he was more and more agitating. We we're going look. We've got passes here. It's fine. You know, don't worry. We're just doing some filming. We're doing the news. You know, we're just we're trying to help the country as much as we can. You know, this is a and it's a newborn country. You, you have to have this. You have to have this democratic process. You, know, you have to have the, the news to to help the country. This small guy. He said, right. well... We're going to have to take you in, do some paperwork over to this camp, just find out what's going on. I'm thinking, All along the time I'm thinking, this is a bit strange. It, it's just, there's something wrong here. We didn't know at the time that they were the Miseratans who had obviously done this to this town. We just didn't know. It was just a random sort of stop. So we went back to this compound, and they said, "Okay, you need to stay in this room, and we've got armed guards and stopping us from moving and all sorts." So we we thought, "Okay, we're getting it's getting a bit out of hand here because we're in a sort of walled compound now, and uh, these guys aren't particularly friendly." So we we spoke to as many people as we could. Uh, sort of local businessmen and things that we'd met just to to try and sort out. One of the main guys who ran one of the big militias in Tripoli, we were on very good terms with him, so he spoke to the guy who'd brought us in on the phone, and the guy just screamed at him. That was when we sort of realised that this was totally out of place and that it's out of our control now, so. Next thing we get taken into a room, quite a small room, probably 20 foot by about 20 foot, Uh, and there's the guy who brought us in and about 10 heavily armed psychopaths surrounding us. Twitching, or literally twitching, fingers on the triggers of the guns, marching round looking very amped up. You know, they were they were all high as well. They were all, all high as a general thing. So we're sat there and then the guy who brought us in just started screaming, literally screaming in Arabic. And I, I don't know I'm not fluent in Arabic, I know bits and bobs. One of the things that he was saying was Satan. Calling us Satan and spies and everything, so it was getting a bit out of hand. He got the guy who picked us up to write a formal report, and it ended up about half a page. And then he came and he shouted at the guy who'd picked us up, and then suddenly there it was th- three three pages. So I thought, okay, this isn't this isn't correct. You know, something something's going on. So then he brought this older guy in Who was again screaming, shouting The atmosphere was very fidgety, very twitchy Uh, Our fixer, who did speak Arabic He looked at him and he was kind of retreating into himself As we're watching So this is not good So he comes over, he goes Can I speak to them? Because he's the other side of the room And he comes over and he goes Look, we are fucked (laughs) And it's I say, uh okay, okay, right, right, okay. Nick, my colleague, got up and just went berserk. So we're surrounded by heavily armed psychopaths, all twitching. A guy calling us Satan, a guy calling us spies. And Nick got up and he called him every name under the sun in English. Every name under the sun. He goes, you're off your head. What the hell do you think you're doing? You can't do this. You know, we're reporters, we're journalists. We've been here all the way along the revolution. You know, what are you doing? Screaming at them. They didn't know what to do about this. Right, because they hadn't been in the situation where in the face of such obvious intimidation that someone's getting up and turning to them and turning it back and just going, No, you're wrong. At this point we still had our things, you know, they hadn't taken our things off us, it, so it was still quite it only just started. So um, we managed to get in touch with a friend of ours who gave us the numbers for the ambassador. So we we rang them and we said, look, this is the situation. And they said, well, you're being held legally. It's like, we know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they said, oh, they're Misratans. It's like, oh. As soon as they said that, we kind of knew that this was extremely bad position for us to be in because we would just outed them to the world of committing genocide, essentially. They put us in this room and they left us there for about six hours. Nick went to sleep. <laughs> I made paper swans with every bit of paper I could find in the room because there's very little else you could do. Then they came back in and they they said, right, uh, we think you're spies. So, well, obviously we're not. You know, we are journalists, give me our credentials. I said, Well, no discussion, you come with us. And then they locked us in a cell, uh, me and Nick. The cell was uh, unbelievable. I mean, there was blood up the walls, there was evidence of continued ongoing torture in this cell, you know, bits of flesh. Uh imprints of stress positions on the wall, bed power cables with blood on them, you know, proper, like a torture chamber. So we're kept in this cell for about six days initially. No idea what was going on. You, You couldn't tell. They were obviously making up their minds about what they could do and what they couldn't do. But in the back of my mind, we think, well, at least the British Embassy knows that we're where we are. Those sort of days were the worst. They were worst. You're very anxious. You're very frightened. You're not sure what's going on. Uh, We weren't being fed. We were given water. Rarely. And it was very, very, you know, you're talking very hot outside at the time by that time as well all our stuff had been taken off us we had our clothes and that was it after about six days it's in the night we're not allowed to sleep either (laughs) we weren't allowed to sleep every time they saw us even being asleep because there was always someone outside the cell watching us always every time they saw us sleeping or relaxing they'd start banging the cell doors with the guns so as you can imagine, you know, you're anxious, you're tired, you're hungry. It was it was the worst situation imaginable at that point. You, you're just kind of you're you're trying to keep a, a sense of what's going on. You're kind of assessing all the time what's going on, what's happening. And there was virtually no information every day there was this guy, and we called him Evil Majid, because he looked like our friend, but a bit worse for wear. And he was a nasty, evil little sod, he really was. And he'd come in and he'd say, yeah, we're gonna execute you today. And that was every single day. He's going you're spies, I know you're spies, you're Israeli paratroopers, and you're gonna be executed today. This is it. And it's like, you know, look at us, we're obviously, obviously not spies. (laughs) You know, we haven't got a clue what we're doing most of the time, we're not spies. Fallen on deaf ears. After the first six days, then it got very strange. Uh, It was about nine o'clock in the evening. Suddenly there's lots of activity and commotion outside the cell. Something's happening, so just go with it. There's not much you can do in this situation. Two guys come in with scarves wrapped around their faces, and another guy dressed in uh, Gaddafi Air Force uniform, and they drag us out of the cell. No words, nothing, you know, totally quiet. So we get forced into this car, and then we we're warned stay down, stay quiet. So we flew out through the compound. And driving out towards the outskirts of Tripoli, towards the airport. And so Nick's sort of in the back seat with me, these two guys in in the front who are being very quiet and very nervous and twitchy. And Nick sort of mimes an airplane taking off. So you think, ah, you know, Christ, we're being deported. Thank God for that. Something at least. And then Nick tries to sort of start up a basic conversation with these guys nothing absolutely stonewall silence nothing so you're kind of nervous but you're hoping hoping for the best you know, you're know, hoping you're going to be taken out the worrying thing was that this was unknown to the embassy now because we're out of where we were supposed to have been so then we drive past the airport and you go ah, okay it's not the airport then what's happening now so we drive past the airport we're driving towards the desert on the outskirts of Tripoli and uh, we pulled in a lay by another guy got in again very quiet scarf around his face all three of them so that we didn't know what was going on he got in the back with us all armed all machine guns he didn't say a word and then we drove on drove on for another 15 20 minutes until we were, we were just on the kind of border of the desert outside of Tripoli. Then we went up this dirt road and we came to this just wall. It was, it was a wall with a, a metal fence in it. And uh, there was a guy waiting, they opened the gates, car drove through, just stopped. Uh, and they said, out out the car. So we got out of the car. He said, walk forward. So me and Nick walked forward. And they had the headlights shining onto us. And then out in the distance, there was nothing. It was just desert. You know, the, there was nothing, the buildings or anything. And Nick turns to me and he goes, looks like this is it. You know, and we're thinking, you know, this is it. This is where it ends. And I said... <laughs> I said, fuck it. We told the truth. Right? We did our best. We told the truth. Fuck them. Right? Uh, which I didn't expect from me, but at the time, you know, it, it just it, it was how I felt. Anger again. It's more constructive. And so they stood behind us then and started cocking and recocking the weapons, the machine guns. And we're there for it was probably about five minutes, but it felt like I don't know forever. I felt something in me change at that moment. Um, it was the worst and the best thing they could have done to me, if that makes sense, because it came to a point where it's just right. This is it. You know, there's no more. This where. This is where our story ends. Then they forced us back in the car. (laughs) They were just plain nice of them. They forced us back in the car and they drove us... drove us up another dirt road to another little... uh, like a villa, it was... it was a villa that was heavily secured bars in the window, sheet metal doors and they put us in this orange room and then the main guy took his scarf off and he goes, I had to take you away from the compound because people were going to kill you right, okay so we stayed there for two days and obviously in hindsight I'm looking back they were making up their mind whether we were going to die or not because what they wanted was basically to just take us out and kill us but the timing of the whole thing was they were also trying to they were trying to get some type of leeway with the fledgling government so they they didn't know ...how far they could go and get away with it. So, at that moment, they were deciding whether to just kill us and dump us. Whether it would be worth their while to do so. Whether they would could hand us over to the government and then get favours, you know. Because it's like, OK, now we're in a position of power because we've done this for the government. They decided against killing us and dumping us immediately... And then they took us back to the compound after a couple of days, no explanation. We were put back in our cell. The next day we were separated, me and Nick, and that was difficult. And then they interrogated us for four days and four nights. That was difficult, but I managed to say to Nick just before we were taken, I just said, look, the only thing we have is the truth right, we have nothing else we have the truth he stuck to the truth I stuck to the truth and it matched, you know however that wasn't the agenda they had the agenda they had was they wanted to prove that we were spies so that they could kill us right, and so everything about us, they tried to put in terms of us being spies so that they could present this evidence to the fledgling government and say, they're spies, so we execute them, right, because we were troublemakers and we'd made trouble for them with the story about the town. There was six days of interrogation. The last day of the interrogation was very bad, because I was hallucinating by this time, it was it was ridiculous I was, you know didn't know where I was, who I was what I was doing uh, tired, hungry the full works, they still wouldn't let us sleep and I remember I remember now I'm sat in the cell and I'm talking to an invisible cow <laughs> I know it's, it sounds ridiculous and it, it is but floating sort of above me is this massive cow, and I'm going, look, you've got hooves. You can just kick, kick the wall down, it's easy. Kick the wall down, and I'll go. You know, it's fine. Do that for me. You know, you, you've got hooves, you can do it. These walls aren't much, just a couple of kicks, you get through them. And then I just went, what am I doing? <laughs> I just had a moment where I was, what am I doing? What the hell am I doing? I'm talking to an invisible flaming cow, that's ridiculous. And I, I kind of—that's a memory I have. At the time, it was—it was so. It, it seemed so natural when I was doing. It. That sorted it, sorted out. It's fine, because you do—you do this. It's constant self-assessment. That's the only way you can deal with any situation, as long as you're assessing it on a moment-to-moment basis partially become detached which is what the the cow was all about it was becoming detached from where I was but it was unhelpful anyway after this after this the last sort of day after the interrogations um in the cell and they've blacked out my room as well the door so I can't see out the door because Nick was in the cell opposite me and they didn't want us communicating with each other um so I heard Nick shout. I couldn't hear what he shouted, but I heard it was definitely Nick and it was shouting. And then there was, like, a commotion in the hallway outside my cell. And then there was fighting, scuffling, and then dragging outside to the front. And then a single gunshot. And I thought, well, i They've killed them. They've killed them. So I put my boots on, and I, I just sat at the door because I thought, oh, well, it's it's a matter of time they're going to come and come for me. I thought at least I'll try and bite somebody's nose off on the way. <laughs> <laughs> but they hadn't. It was another prisoner. They just they just grabbed someone else and, and executed them. And the Nick shouting. I I'm still not sure whether it actually happened or not. It, again, it's difficult to say because at the time. Your mind's everywhere. After that we were put back in a cell. Again, we're not told anything. Then we were allowed Human Rights Watch, who were absolutely amazing. They were allowed in to see us very, very briefly. And so we told them and they, they gave us some idea of what was happening outside, that our families knew what was going on, the British government had become involved. There was a campaign to to free us, and all sorts happening like that. And the British Embassy knew about it, they were trying to get in, but the militia weren't letting them in, and they were trying to communicate with the fledgling government at the time. They were amazing, all, all of these people were amazing. Over the next two weeks, they negotiated with the fledgling government, the fledgling government negotiated with them, there was... Uh, Judges brought in to actually decide whether or not we were spies to this militia um and it's obvious we weren't because there was no evidence against us whatsoever that we were spying. It was just absolutely ridiculous given the the nature of the place at the time it, it just it was ridiculous at length after it was twenty seven days we were handed over to a government militia. Okay, so this is a militia that was tentatively allied to the fledgling government. So we were handed over to them. And as soon as we got there, they (laughs) said, um, we're going to investigate whether you're spies or not. It's like, ah, here we go again. The treatment was better. They let us sleep for the first time, which was absolutely amazing. And they fed us as well which is amazing. Um, but there was still that, you know, that unknowing. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's gonna happen. You are kind of, you're kind of worried. And for me, like I said, when they pulled the mock execution on us, for me, when I say it's the best and the worst thing they could have done, it's because I realized that a lot of this stuff was completely out of my control anyway the worst thing of it all was uh, family. The thought of what it would do to my family was the only thing they had on me. Everything else, fine, from that point on. Because I thought, you can only go moment to moment. If I'm alive, if I'm not in pain, uh, winning for that moment after the mock acution every moment was like that for me I really I got to the point where there was nothing they could actually do to me that, that was going to take this little kernel I had inside myself this little piece of me that knew that the things I'd done had been for the right reasons to help people to stop suffering that's generally what everything for me is all about um. <laughs> so, <laughs> where was I? Oh yeah, we got released to the, the the government as is. So we were there two days, and the, they were investigating us, spying. And then Nick runs up to me and he goes, "Get your boots on!" I went, "What's up?" He's going. The Mizratans have surrounded the place, the building. So they surrounded the building with anti-aircraft guns and decided they wanted us back Uh, and that they were going to kill us or kill everyone in the building. There was 12, 12 hours or so of intense negotiation with this militia and with the fledgling government and with the British Embassy and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and just loads of people, and they diffused it. Then we got told that we were found not guilty of spying by the Fledgling government, and that we were going to have to give a press conference. They'd let the British consul in to see us, and he told us all this. So we had to give a press conference where the justice minister would tell the world's press that we were not guilty and that we were free to leave (laughs) just before we gave this press conference the constant goes right what's going to happen is this he's going to speak you're going to get up you're going to shake hands with this guy and then immediately after that you walk to the right and then you're going to be surrounded by British soldiers and then you're going to be marched out to a waiting car and you're going to be driven to a safe house and that happened and it was it was it was again still you fueled by adrenaline so it's kind of dreamlike you're kind of going, I'm not sure what's going on so we <laughs> we get out we manage to speak to our families by telephone very very emotional as you can imagine and then we get in an armored convoy across Tripoli to safe house where we're in the safe house to Right, have a relax, you're gonna be flying out tomorrow. Have a relax, have a sleep, I was like, Yeah, that's gonna happen. <laughs> um, we've just spent all night talking to these guys, the security for the embassy are amazing, amazing guys who we're still in touch with now it's <laughs> good guys. We got to the airport the next day, armored convoy. The airport was being held by a different militia. And this militia decided in the airport that they weren't going to let us get on the flight because they wanted us. Right? Your hopes are being raised and then dashed and raised and dashed and, raised and dashed. And so there was a standoff in the airport between the security from the embassy and the militia in the airport but the security in the embassy, you could tell that they could have taken the whole airport if they wanted to. It wouldn't have mattered, you know. So there's a big standoff, lots of shouting. And the British embassy said, Look, we're going to watch these guys get onto the plane and we're going to watch the plane take off. Then we're going to leave, which is what they did. So we got on the plane. After about 10 minutes, when the the plane actually taxied and lifted off when the plane lifted off all the people in the plane the other passengers just got up and came over to us and started hugging us and shaking our hands and apologising uh, for Libya but 99% of the people who we met were wonderful wonderful There was 1% and they were horrific Horrific people, but we got back, and then I found out about my sister, what she'd done. She'd run this amazing, amazing campaign to free us, along with my brother-in-law, and they were just—they—they they saved my life without a shadow of a doubt, um, and it. it it made the bond between me and my family so huge and strong and valuable. And the difference is that I'm aware of it. That's the difference because when I got into this, the whole thing, I was, I wouldn't say naive. I wanted to do something good. I wanted to do something that meant something. I wanted to help in this sort of exercise of freedom, almost, for a lot of people. What I'd forgotten was the effect me putting myself in harm's way would have on the people I loved. And that's where it all becomes simple once more. It's very simple. Your friends, your family, the people you love, Everything else is just fluff. These things have happened since the beginning of time. We have very, very little effect on them, no matter what we want or what we hope for. We have little effect on them. They will do as they do. They will keep on happening until humans sort of turn a corner and decide that it's just silly. We can live, we can stop people suffering. It's again very simple. That's how my life is now. It is quite simple. Uh, I've got a a good a good sense of what's important and what isn't important now.